The green room is a backstage room reserved for musicians and other talent at larger venues where performers can store gear and relax when they're not on stage. There are a bunch of theories as to why it's called the green room, but having been in a lot of them in my time, I don't think a single one has ever been green. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about green rooms, red rooms, blue rooms, and even rooms that have no one particular color. The episode you're about to listen to was made possible by each and every one of you out there, all the people who directly support this show. If you like Strong Songs and think, you know, I'd like to support this show, you can find a link to the Strong Songs Patreon, as well as a PayPal link for one-time donations in the show notes. Thank you to everyone who helps me keep this going. On this episode, well, it's the third week of September, which means it's finally time to tackle a stone classic by one of the greatest bands of all time, one of those tunes that will ring out forever, and I'm excited to get to the bottom of why that is. So let's plug in the guitars, tune up the horns, and hit this thing. one of the most straightforward feelings there is. When you feel joy, you feel joy, and that's all there is to it. Love can be wonderful. Love can also be complicated. It can hurt. It can ache. It can even be dark and difficult. Happiness? Well, that can mean so many different things for so many different people. Happiness can be effervescent and fleeting, or it can be deep and subtle. But joy? Joy is just right there. It is what it is. It thrills through you, and you just kind of feel it. And for me, anyway, joy is inextricably linked with music. What else could you call that feeling you get when you're dancing with your friends and a great song comes on and just for a moment, all the bad things in your life, all the challenges, the things that stress you out, it all kind of goes away and you're just in the music, you're sharing with the people around you. What else could you call that feeling but joy? Everyone has their songs that do that, those perfect songs that bring them pure joy, the songs that bring everyone to the dance floor, the songs that make us feel whole again, no matter how down we've been. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about one of those songs, one of the greatest of those songs, a song that, for me, is as pure as any I've heard, an endless cascade of shimmering joy that, for three and a half minutes, carries me to a land of golden dreams and shiny days where we dance in the night while the stars steal the night away. It may not be possible to turn joy into something physical, to convert it into sound waves and record it onto a disc, but this song, well, this song comes as close as any has. It's the 21st of September, and you know what that means. It's time to talk about those three elements known as earth, wind, and fire. More than 40 years after it came out, Earth, Wind & Fire's 1978 hit September remains one of the most joyful, soul-nourishing recordings ever made, a song that, like the emotion it conjures, is both straightforward and worthy of a deeper analysis, a layer cake of joyful groove that, once fully assembled, becomes undeniable. I am so happy to be finally making this episode. I've been planning to do it ever since I started the show. I've gotten tons of requests for it. People always say, hey, 
when September rolls around, you should do an episode on September. And I've also wanted to talk about Earth, Wind & Fire on this show since I started making it. They are one of my favorite bands ever, one of, full stop, the greatest bands of all time. And that is a subjective opinion, but, I mean, it's also just kind of a fact. If you've ever seen even just a video of Earth, Wind & Fire performing live... You know what I'm talking about. It just so happened that your three second September episode was due to come out on September 22nd, and I figured, all right, I can bump this thing up a day and we can get this right. My history with this song is inextricably tied to my history with Earth, Wind & Fire, and my embarrassing confession is that when I started out as a snobby little jazz performance student who thought he knew a lot but actually knew very little, I thought this kind of music was corny. So that gradually changed during my years in music school, and by the time I graduated, I loved Earth, Wind & Fire. That mostly was due to the fact that during the summer after my junior year, I joined the horn section for a pretty great cover band. We were called Booty Affair, which to this day I am unsure whether that's an amazing name or a terrible name for a cover band. After I had been playing with the band for a few months, I decided I wanted to really sit down with the recordings of these songs and give them a close listen. I realized that even though this wasn't something I was doing in a classroom, this was actually an important part of my musical education, and I realized that I hadn't actually sat down with these recordings and listened to them closely the way that I did with other music that I was studying. So I am an elder millennial. I went to college before YouTube and music streaming services, so I had to go to the music library and check out CDs. And as I was tracking down the albums I wanted to listen to, I realized, hey, a significant percentage of the songs that we play every night, and a lot of my favorites are all by the same band, Earth, Wind & Fire. There was Shining Star, Serpentine Fire, Way of the World, In the Stone, which has one of the greatest intros ever recorded. I listened to those songs and so many others like Boogie Wonderland, Sing a Song, that baller cover of Gotta Get You Into My Life, and of course, September, all delivered with that incredible mix of feel and feeling, heart and harmony that was Earth, Wind & Fire. It was one of those crucial light bulb moments when I realized how totally wrong I'd been about something, my immature attempts at music snobbery melting away replaced by a love and admiration for so many great bands I hadn't been making space for, and from then till now, my musical life has been so much better for it. Wind and Fire was at the forefront of pop music in the 1970s and into the 1980s. They topped the charts, they won Grammys all over the place, they were a hugely influential and very successful band, and even if you'd never heard the words Earth, Wind and Fire, you probably already knew one of their songs. 
The band's name comes from the astrological markers of its leader, the great singer and multi-instrumentalist Maurice White, and I'm actually guessing that some of you might not know Maurice White's name just off the top of your head, but let me tell you, he's one of the most incredible performers who ever lived and one of the most important musicians of the 20th century. Maurice White. That's the guy. White assembled Earth, Wind & Fire largely out of family members and other musicians that he knew in his hometown of Chicago. They've cycled through a ton of musicians over the course of their lifespan, so there's been a lot of different people that have played with Earth, Wind & Fire, though there was kind of a set ensemble through the 1970s, and the personnel of September actually reflects that personnel. So the band we're going to be talking about on this episode is the version of Earth, Wind & Fire that played a lot of their most famous songs and a lot of the songs that I just played for you. So if you're going to know Earth, Wind & Fire, you actually have a lot of names to keep straight because it's a big band and each individual member played a crucial role in the band's overall sound. White's powerful lead vocals are of course one of the most defining things about Earth, Wind & Fire. He sang lead on a lot of their songs, but he was joined by vocalist Philip Bailey. Bailey has this amazing falsetto, this just beautiful falsetto that really is integral to the sound of Earth, Wind & Fire. I actually first became familiar with Philip Bailey because my band, a rock band that I was in um, more than 10 years ago, I sang his part when we covered Easy Lover, which is this killer duet that he's sang with Phil Collins in 1990. It's really, it's such a good song. It's another one that an earlier iteration of myself might have thought was corny, but now that I've performed it, and now that I've seen how a crowd goes wild when you begin to play it, that song rips, man. So there was actually a fair amount of crossover between Earth, Wind & Fire and Phil Collins, and specifically the version of Genesis that Phil Collins fronted. He was also joined by the legendary Phoenix Horns. That was the name of the horn section that played on September and so many other great EWF songs. Ramley, Michael Davis, and Michael Harris on trumpet, Don Myrick on the alto sax, and Louis Satterfield on trombone. I've also seen Andrew Woolfolk credited with soprano sax on September, and I can't pick a soprano out of the horn section, but the horns are kind of in the back on this one, as important as they are to the arrangement. And also, he's in the music video. He's up there on stage with his soprano with the rest of the band. So I'm going to say that Andrew Woolfolk was also on this track. Al McKay and Johnny Graham both played guitar in this track, and both of their guitar parts are super important. McKay was one of the co-writers of this song. He actually co-wrote a lot of Earth, Wind & Fire classics. Larry Dunn played keyboards, Ralph Johnson played percussion, Maurice White's brother Fred played the drums, and this whole thing, and really kind of arguably this whole band, was anchored by another of Maurice's brothers, the great Verdine White, one of the most incredible bassists who ever lived, and right up there with his brother Maurice is one of the defining elements of Earth, Wind & Fire's sound.
September was released as a single in 1978. It was an immediate chart success, and shortly afterward, it was included as an original number on the 1978 compilation album, The Best of Earth, Wind, and Fire, Volume 1. That is an incredible collection, well worth checking it out. It was written by Maurice White, Earth, Wind, and Fire guitarist Al McKay, and songwriter Allie Willis. The story goes, McKay came in with the chord progression. It's a really cool chord progression, don't worry, we'll get into it. And White and Willis wrote the rest of the song on top of that. Allie Willis is actually another name that you should know. She was really cool. She was a working songwriter, kind of in the pre-solo career Carol King mode. She wrote or co-wrote a bunch of great songs, most notably, at least to me, because I loved this song so much as a kid. She wrote the future strong song Neutron Dance, which was recorded by the Pointer Sisters in 1984. And it's hard to say. such a good song. We've had a lot of good music on this episode so far. This has been a fun one. There's too much good music in the world. I wish I could make a million episodes of this show, but I gotta go one song at a time. It's both a blessing and a curse. But one day, I will do an episode on the Neutron Dance, and yeah, Allie Willis, know her name, she was one of the greats. Okay, that's enough backstory. In 1978, that band made up of all those people I just named recorded a song called September, written by White McKay and Willis, and decades later, that song still brings joy to the land. So let's start with that instantly recognizable intro, the moment when everyone in the room realizes that September is about to play, a cheer goes up, and everyone heads to the dance floor. So I know I said that In the Stone was one of the best intros ever recorded, but the intro for September is also pretty great. It accomplishes so much in such a limited amount of time. It sets the stage and it acts as a sort of a fanfare. It establishes some of the elements of the groove, but it doesn't totally go into the groove yet, so it's kind of opening the door for the groove to drop. It's really well assembled. So the first thing you'll notice is probably the guitars. There are two guitars that are really prominent right at the very beginning. This is Johnny Graham and Al McKay on the guitars. My guess is that Graham is playing the tight rhythmic figure over on the left and McKay is playing the more chordal stuff, but that is just a guess. That tight guitar part actually runs through the entire song from tip to tail. We're here at the tip, but it plays from start to finish. It never really changes. So I spent a lot of time on the recreation this time around, on recreating the tracks on this uh, on this recording, and I spent a while trying to figure out how to get that guitar tone. It's this kind of spanky, choked sound. It's really distinct. I couldn't quite nail it, and then I realized I was playing with a pick, and I'm actually pretty sure that this guitarist is using his fingers, so that's how you get that sound. And playing it feels more like playing bass than playing guitar. The other guitar part is more noticeable and it is unique to this intro. It's a pretty classic sound, an electric guitar strumming octaves, this time on an A. Ringing strummed octaves on a guitar are a pretty classic move. It's what I think of as a dinner bell riff. It's the kind of riff that's meant to signal that dinner's about to get started, that we're about to kick things off. I'll actually always associate it with Cool and the Gang's celebration. Great octave guitars on that tune. Yeah! 
In terms of harmony, those two guitars are joined by Larry Dunn on the upright piano. He's over there on the right in the right channel. He's just banging through the verse chords. We'll talk about those actual chords when the verse begins, but he's actually providing the same chords as the rest of the song. So just like that guitar that's over on the left, this is a piano part that runs through a lot of the song. So the build of this intro is primarily in the way they layer in the rhythm section. At first there's no drum set and no bass, the only percussion is what sounds to me like bongos over on the right, they're providing just this kind of metronomic pop, and again the bongos just run through this entire recording. There's also a prominent shaker that's just providing this steady, washy sizzle right in the middle. So here at the top we've got one guitar picking out a single note rhythm, one guitar strumming open octaves, one piano banging through some chords, and bongos and shaker providing some percussive texture. So take a listen from the very beginning and try to pick out each of those. Okay, time to start adding stuff. So as you can hear, those first four bars are pretty static in terms of the arrangement, and then things escalate very quickly. First we get a couple of more percussion grooves in, a kick drum comes in, and it's joined by some claps and snaps on quarter notes, along with sixteenth notes on the hi-hat, and those claps and snaps are so crucial. There's a couple other things, there's a little flourish from a third over double electric guitar and just barely audible. You can actually hear the string section come in over on the left, they're much more audible later, but really, the claps, the snaps, the bongos, the shaker and that kick drum, well they're what make this section thump, they're what make it pop, and they're what make it sizzle. September has this distinct energy to it, right? It's a very recognizable pulse that comes from its distinct drum groove, or at least it owes a lot to the drum groove, but the actual drum set part, the thing that Fred White is playing, is not remarkable at all. It's a really basic drum part. He's playing it super well, but what makes the whole thing work is all the extra stuff, the additional percussion instruments that they've layered on top of the drum set to emphasize the different aspects of the groove. And if you notice, those sounds were all introduced here in the front before the full drum set came in. The claps, the shaker, the snaps, the bongos, those are what tie the whole song together and those are actually the first elements to enter, paving the way for the full drum set. So that's a concept I'm actually going to come back to a lot with this recording. What makes September sound as rich as it does and what makes the recording so distinct is the way that it's been layered. This record was produced by Maurice White in addition to co-writing the song and singing lead, he produced this record. Like I said, the guy is amazing. Um, he really nailed something unusual with this. This song has an unusual sound. It's a bit of an echo of that wall of sound technique that I've talked about a bunch of times that was very popular in the 1960s where engineers would layer multiple versions of the same part on top of one another to create this super saturated sound. Earth, Wind & Fire is kind of doing that with this recording, which isn't their usual approach. Like, they have really rich and really layered recordings, but this one, it's a little bit more dense and a little bit richer than your average Earth, Wind & Fire song. It does have a distinct sound, and you can hear it from the start. I mean, the shaker, the bongos, the kick drum, the claps and snaps, those things all run through this entire song, but you can hear them very clearly at the beginning. This groove is totally happening even before the bass and the drum set enter. So 
those first few bars really prime the pump, but then it just explodes. Verdine White enters with that iconic pedaled low A, Fred White hits the crash and goes into a steady backbeat on the full drum set, the guitars open up and start strumming that open G over A, and above it all, the Phoenix horns enter with that triumphant opening fanfare. It rules so hard. I've played that horn part so many times on so many gigs, and every single time the horns come in on that, people lose their minds. It's really, it's one of the greatest horn intros ever. It's a smart horn arrangement too. There's a lot of really rich and interesting horn arranging going on on this track. This intro plays out kind of in four little segments, four little acts. First, the horns come in in unison. They introduce the figure. And I'm just gonna use piano to demonstrate this because I'll use some sampled horns later, but I don't play trumpet and trombone, and I think the piano will suffice for now. So the horns all come in together. Then the lead trumpet, I think that's Michael Harris overdubbed maybe a couple times. The top trumpet plays the figure right up the octave. And then the trombone echoes that down the octave. And then all of the horns split out into harmony and they end with this fat chord that ends on a big splatted downbeat. It's so good, it kind of feels like a perfectly executed basketball play, like quick passes through the horn section until they end on a big slam dunk. Listen for it. Just like that, we're in the first verse, we're off, here we go. So as I've already mentioned, the intro is really just introducing a bunch of elements that are present in the song's verse and chorus, and now that full groove is in. So everything that we just heard in the intro is now happening in the full groove, it's just that it's kind of coalesced into what we're gonna be doing for the entire rest of the song. And I do mean the entire rest of the song. September is this funny kind of simple yet complex. Now that the full band is in, there's actually no dramatic changes until the end of the song. There's no breakdown, there's no big groove change up, there's no solo sections. It's just verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, out. But there's so much richness and complexity and variation in what's going to happen in those sections and how the song gradually morphs over the course of its runtime. So it's a killer groove right from the outset, right from this first verse. So listen to that first verse and pay attention in particular to how it's grooving, to how all those elements that were introduced during the intro have kind of coalesced around the bass and the drums and how it feels, just that pulse that it's got and then we'll start peeling it apart. There's a reason that September is this recurring magical thing. There's a reason that every September 21st, people around the world get back into this song. And that's because of how it grooves. It's got this like effervescent groove, this feeling that it imparts. It's kind of golden to me. I don't really get into synesthesia much, but to me, this song, it's just got this golden shimmering feeling. And that feeling comes from how it grooves. It's got this bounce. It's a sort of gentle, endless floating. It's not true of every song. Some grooves, they hit you super hard. They just smack you in the face with the groove. And it just is this, it's a really aggressive thing. Some grooves are kind of like washy. You know, they kind of submerge you. They wash over you and 
pull you under. September doesn't do either of those things. It floats or it kind of skips along on the surface and it lifts you up right from the start so your feet barely touch the ground. That feeling comes from a few different musical elements that are all working in tandem. There's the layered percussion, the interplay between the chordal instruments, the guitar and the keyboards, and the single note instruments, the bass and that left channel guitar that's just playing that single part. The interplay between those two is a really important part of this groove. It's kind of layered on top of the drums and percussion. And then there's the chord progression, which is a really important part of this song's groove as well. So I'm going to talk about all three of those things and then sort of put them together and take them apart in different ways so you can hear how it's all working together. Let's start with the percussion. Like everything in September, the drums and percussion are complex and layered. I make out five distinct elements. There's the drum set, the bongos, the shaker, the hand claps, and the hand snaps. As I already mentioned, Fred White is playing that extremely simple thump, pop, and sizzle on the drum set. He's just playing kick drum, thump, snare drum, pop on the backbeat, and hi-hat and eighth notes for the sizzle. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the magic of this groove comes from all the stuff that's layered on top of that basic drum groove. There's the bongos over on the right, they're playing this kind of metronomic groove. There's a shaker that gets mixed down, but I think runs throughout, and it kind of softens the crisper hi-hat sizzle. There's also snaps and claps. There's snaps on the downbeat and claps on the backbeat. So the snaps add some high air to the thump of the kick, and the claps add some crackle to the snare drum's pop. So let's layer it, starting with the claps and the snaps. And now let's add the bongos and shaker. There we go. So that's enough drumming, let's move on to harmony. Before we get into the specific parts, the way that the chordal instruments interact with those single note instruments, let's just talk about the chords and the chord progression for this tune. The story goes the guitarist Al McKay brought the chord progression in to Maurice White and White and Allie Willis wrote the rest of the song based on that chord progression, and it's a really nice chord progression. There's something really interesting about it that I want to kind of note up top before we get into the specific chords and the way that the song moves through them. So we're in A major or F sharp minor, depending on how you want to call it. A major and F sharp minor are relative minor and major of one another, so both keys have the same number of sharps. Every major key has a relative minor key and vice versa. There are three sharps in A major, F sharp, C sharp, and G sharp. The rest of the notes are natural. I'm going to say we're in A major because I just think this tune is in A major. It's published in A major. It's more of a kind of major key kind of a song. And that's despite the fact that September does have a lot of F sharp minor chords in it. You could even say the verse is in F sharp minor, but it never once has an A major chord. And that's the interesting thing about September's chord progression. It never resolves to the one chord. Now, if you've been listening to this show for a long time, you know that most songs resolve at some point to the one chord. Most chord progressions like to go to one. And when I say the chord progressions like to go to one, what I really mean is that we listeners tend to like chord progressions to resolve to one, or at least those of us who grew up listening to popular American music and those common chord progressions have gotten used to it and sort of expect it. That means if you're in the key of A major and you may be bouncing around between some common chords and eventually you expect that the song is going to land on an A major, but September never does that. It's an A major without ever featuring a straight up 
A major chord. There is a chord with an A in the bass that happens at the end of every single phrase, but it's a G over A. We'll, we'll get into it. It's a different kind of a chord. It's not an A major and it doesn't sound resolved to me. And that's what gives this song that spinning, floating feeling. And it's at the heart of this song's magic. It's how this song feels like standing in a field at golden hour, sort of joyfully spinning around in circles with your friends. I think that September feels like that because it never resolves, so it can just keep on spinning forever. Now, I've talked about this kind of thing before. This isn't unique to this song. For example, my episode on Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, very similar kind of unresolved chord progression there. It does resolve, but it's this kind of long and winding feeling that fits with the subject matter of that song. September is its own beast, though. It's really, it is interesting for a song that's in A major to never really resolve. And this song is just so simple. There's only two chord progressions. Like I said, there's no bridge, there's no solos. It's just a verse and a chorus, then a verse and a chorus. It just kind of goes back and forth between them. And even the verse and the chorus are kind of similar. They both end in the same place, but they start in a different place and they get to that ending in a different way. So another reason that September sounds so lush is that it uses a lot of seventh chords. And if you've listened to this show for very long, in particular the episode on ABBA's Dancing Queen, you know how lush seventh chords can make things sound. A seventh chord has a root, a third, a fifth, and then a seventh on top. That extra harmonic information just kind of fleshes things out and makes the chords sound more rich. And pretty much every single chord in September is a seventh chord. I actually can't think of any just basic triads like a G major, you know, C sharp minor, they're all seventh chords all the way down. Let me show you what the effect of that is. So the first phrase in this verse is these chords. It goes D major seven to C sharp minor seven. Then it really quick touches B minor seven and goes back up to C sharp minor seven. And then it ends on F sharp minor seventh, that relative minor chord of A major. When you put them together in rhythm, you get this. Okay, so now let's do a little experiment. I'm gonna convert all of those chords to just the basic triad. So instead of D major seven, we're just gonna play D major. Instead of C sharp minor seven, we're just gonna play a C sharp minor triad. Okay, so here's what the chord progression would sound like with no sevenths. And here it is with the sevenths again. kind of wild, right? They sound really different. The triad version is just sort of dull sounding. It lacks that extra shimmer that the sevenths give it. And especially that last chord, that F sharp minor triad is just kind of like blonk. But if you add that seventh, that F sharp minor seventh, mm, it's so nice. So that set of chords just repeats itself for the second phrase. Then on the third phrase, it actually slightly changes. It starts out the same, but then instead of going up to a C sharp minor after the B minor seventh, it actually goes to a C sharp dominant seventh, which adds a proper cadence to that final F sharp minor chord the last time that they go to it. It's one of those little blink and you miss it things, but just the C sharp minor seventh on that third phrase becomes a C sharp dominant seventh, leads to the F sharp minor. And then the final chord, which is the final chord of every single phrase, is this kind of G major seven over A, which creates this sort of A sus 13 sound. It's a big suspended sound, and it's the closest that September comes to resolving to A major. So 
it's a distinct and interesting chord progression on its own, it's also interesting in how they perform it and how they arrange it, so let's look at that. For starters, there's the chordal instruments, there's the electric guitar, and those keyboards. Larry Dunn is playing keys on this. He recorded an acoustic piano that's pretty clearly audible over on the right, and there's also what sounds to me like a Wurlitzer or Rhodes, an electric piano, that's a lot harder to hear, but it's definitely there. It's just a lot lower in the mix, and that's over on the left. And there's also an electric guitar playing a very similar part to the acoustic piano. That's also over on the right. And I'm going to guess that that's Al McKay. Since it's his chord progression, it would make sense that he would be the one who'd want to play it on the recording. So those are the instruments that are playing the chords, that are just playing through the chord progression. When you layer them on top of one another, this is what you get. So that leaves the two single note parts, the bass and that second guitar part. Verdine White is playing this nice solid bass line on these verses, he's just kind of moving through the chord progression, nice and easy, he's got a great feel, and he's just kind of bouncing on those eighth notes. Bum 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 bum. And then there's that second, more prominent guitar part that just plays the same thing throughout this entire recording. It's that kind of spanky finger style thing. It's like plucked, really pulled on the strings that I talked about earlier. I'm guessing this is Johnny Graham playing it, but again, I'm not positive. But this one is just, it's just this very rhythmic thing. It's almost part of the rhythm section. The notes of that part, they just play over and over and over again. It's C sharp, B, A, G sharp, A. It's just really basic. A major thing, which is one of the reasons that this song kind of reads as being an A major, despite that lack of an A major chord. There is one additional guitar part during this first verse. It only happens during this first verse. It's this little riff in thirds, um, just on an extra guitar that they must have overdubbed after the fact. Um, and it's one of a lot of one-offs like this that this song has, where Maurice White will just add these little parts to each section, just a little bit of spice to help each section stand out. And the spice at the beginning is just this extra guitar part that's been layered on top. So that's a lot of stuff. I just spent a while going through all these parts. And like I said, I spent a long time working on the recreation of this song, longer than I usually do. It was a really fun process. I kind of just got really into it. And I learned a lot in doing so. I got a sense for how it's all these little things that stack on top of one another to make this song sound so distinct, to have that magic that it has, you know, that just certain magical sound that September has. It's a bunch of little things stacking on top of one another. So here's my full recreation of that opening verse without vocals, and I want you to listen to everything that I just went through. So listen to how the groove works, listen to that basic drum beat and how it's enhanced with those bongos, the shaker, those extra percussion parts, the claps and the snaps. Listen to the chord progression, those lush seventh chords, how they bounce around but they never quite resolve to A major. Try to hear how the acoustic piano and the electric guitar over on the right are stacked right on top of one another and catch how Verdine White's bass line and Johnny Graham's single note guitar part over on the left join that extra overdubbed strummed guitar part to lock in with the drums and add even more bounce to the pulse. Okay. Ears on, here's the whole thing, let's go. And there it is, man, that's the groove. 
It's not complicated exactly, but it is rich. It's dense and specific, and even without vocals, those arranging choices are what make it sound like September. So we've covered the rhythm section, we've covered the harmony, let's move on to the melody. Maurice White's lead vocals on this track are really strong, he's a great singer, he sounds really good, and just like the chord progression that he's singing over, his melody kind of feels unresolved, even though it does kind of resolve if you took it out of the context of the chord progression. It feels like it's kind of floating along, you know, like it's keeping itself aloft, which is the feeling of this song in general. The melody just moves through the first six notes of A major, it really centers around a C sharp, which is the third in the key of A major, and actually the melody ends really strongly on an A, which would be the one, I mean it's like the most resolved sound you can get if the rest of the song resolved with him, if the chords resolved to an A major, the A that he sings would sound really resolved. That would sound like this. <laughs> it's weird, right? Like it's so pat, it sounds all wrong. It would sound all wrong if the song did that. But remember, they don't do that. They end on a G major 7 over A. So Verdine White is playing that, you know, pedal octave A thing. It sounds like he's playing A, but everyone else is playing G major 7. So it's like that sus 13 suspended floating sound. So when Maurice White lands on that A on the 1, it sounds very different. That sounds like this. It's really nice, right? It doesn't land, it floats. And that decision, the decision to never resolve to that overly pat, grounded A major chord, and instead every single time to go to an A sus 13, that might be the most consequential harmonic decision anyone made when writing this song. Every single phrase in September doesn't really end. It just sort of lightly floats in place before plunging forward into the next section. So listen to that second half of the verse and focus on White's melody. I'll play along on piano and just listen for that. Listen for the contour of it, how his melody keeps bouncing up in the air, bouncing up in the air, and then when it finally does resolve, the harmony underneath it actually doesn't resolve and keeps things up in the air, carrying straight through into the chorus. Here we go. So let's get into the ba-di-yas and the ba-da-das. Let's talk about this chorus. The chorus is why we're all here. The chorus for September. I mean, it's the whole thing. The verses are great, but the chorus is why we're all here. So at first listen, the chorus actually sounds pretty similar to the verse, aside from the vocals. You could be forgiven for just hearing it and thinking, well, they just sing a different melody over the same, you know, backing tracks, the same rhythm tracks, the same chord progression. That's partly true. That's because the groove in the percussion is essentially identical. There's some subtle changes, the bongos are playing some slightly more elaborate figures, the mix is a little bit different, Fred White plays some basic drum fills, some crash cymbal hits, you know, little things like that, but by and large, it's the same percussion groove. The chords, however, are different. The chorus chord progression moves around the circle of fourths, it does a 2, 5, 3, 6 in A major, B minor 7 to E7 to C sharp minor 7 
to F sharp minor 7. We've talked about the circle of fourths and that kind of chord progression a lot of times in past episodes. I won't spend too much time on it here. It's a really jazz, kind of jazz standard chord progression, really. It's a, a more of an old-fashioned thing, um, but it's a really cyclical kind of chord progression, and you would think they do it three times, so they move through those four chords three times, and then when they would normally resolve to A major, of course, they don't. They go to G major 7 over A, aka A sus 13. Now that one guitar over on the left that's playing that spanky finger-picked thing, that's still doing the same thing through the chorus. Like I said, it's the same through the entire song. The chordal guitar part, the one that I think is Al McKay, that changes up during this chorus. It's this actually nice little voice-led part that was really fun to learn. It moves through those chords in a nice way, kind of higher up on the neck, but the real star of the chorus in the rhythm section is Verdine White. Maybe unsurprisingly, because Verdine White is usually the star of most Earth, Wind, and Fire songs. His bass line on this chorus kills. There's just something so perfect about it. It's the it's one of those parts on this song. I mean, every bass player worth their salt that's ever played this style of music knows this bass line on the chorus. There's just something so perfect about it. It's got this bounce. Boop, beat up. Boom, boom. Like it's partly the execution, which is also true of this whole band. I mean, Fred White is playing a pretty basic drum groove through this whole thing, but his bounce, you know, his execution is what makes this drum part, simple though it is, sound distinct. But Verdine White's bass part here on the chorus, it's also just carefully written. It's carefully chosen. It's rhythmically pretty different from what he was playing on the verse. And I think that really helps the chorus stand out, despite the fact that the drum and percussion groove hasn't changed. Let me show you. So here's the verse groove with just drums and bass. It starts with those eighth notes, bup, 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 bup. It's kind of busy, it's got a little bit more subdivision. Compare that with the chorus, now here's the groove on the chorus with just drums and bass, and listen to that bass line and pay attention to how it's different rhythmically from what he was playing during the verse. There's more space, right? The way that he starts each phrase has more space in it, and that makes it bounce very differently. So that's the rhythm section. Other than the vocals, that just leaves the strings and the horns. The strings on September are playing some pretty cool stuff. They play a lot of just long pads throughout this recording, though there's some other busier string stuff going on as well that I can't hear that well, and also just like don't totally have time to get into. But there is actually a surprising amount of string action going on on this that really emphasizes, sort of adds to that wall of sound effect that they're getting. Here on the chorus, the strings are playing a really audible, really nice part. They're just voice leading sevens to threes through those two fives on the chorus. It's a big sort of wide thing. The horns, however, those phoenix horns, they're playing one of many memorable horn lines on this song. Trombonist Lewis Satterfield is kind of off on his own. He's actually just doubling the melody on trombone, and I think he's overdubbed. I think a lot of these horns are overdubbed. There's definitely some studio business going on with the horns. So the trombone is doubling the melody. Trumpeters Romley Michael Davis and Michael Harris are synced up with saxophonist Don Myrick. They're doing their own thing. They start with these staccato hits, Bop. And then they play this figure. That figure is a part that every horn player worth their salt knows. Everybody knows how to play the horn parts on September. And it's actually doing some foreshadowing that melody. If that sounds familiar when I sing it, that's because that's actually the vocal melody that Philip Bailey sings up the octave in falsetto on the second half of the chorus. The horns also play a cool figure at the very end of the phrase on the chorus on that sus chord. It goes like this. 
It's another Phoenix Horns classic, another one that every horn player knows, and I'm doing my best to kind of recreate it here. I'm using sampled trumpet and trombone because I don't play those instruments. I am playing alto sax. I think that makes it sound just real enough to get the point across, but obviously there is no sound like an actual group of horn players playing together, and there was no sound like this specific group of horn players playing together. So here's my recreation of the chorus without vocals. Listen to it and try to hear all of that at once. You're going to have to really turn your ears on and, uh, and hear a lot at once. Try to hear that new chordal guitar part over on the right as it kind of bounces through those chords. It actually matches up rhythmically with the new bass line that Verdine White is playing. Listen to that bass line, how it leaves a little more space. It adds a kind of different bounce to the groove. Hear those strings over on the left. They're just gliding along through that chord progression. And listen to the horns, how they alternate between those tight staccato hits and that foreshadowing counter melody that sits really beautifully with the sung melody. All right, here we go. it's finally time to talk about the final most instantly recognizable element of September those vocals on the chorus I definitely hear Philip Bailey's falsetto on this it's possible that there are other band members singing either here or later in the tune but I definitely hear Philip up there uh, just wailing away on those high C sharps and D's in his falsetto it sounds to me like they've multi-tracked him they've panned it left and right it's got a lot of reverb and a nice kind of chorus effect on the vocals as well which I'm also hearing on the lead vocals they're just using some sort of doubling chorus effect on everything, which you don't really notice because all of the vocals have it, but it just adds a slightly artificial, kind of brighter and more taffy-like sound to the vocals. The melody is really straightforward. It's similar to White's verse melody. It's just up the octave. He's walking around a bunch around high C sharp, and then it ends on an A. It's really high, even though Bailey makes it sound effortless. These are these are some high notes. Um, I took a crack at singing it and kind of matching the production just to see how difficult it would be to do. It was really fun to try to match his sound, and I want to emphasize try. I think I have a pretty good high head voice, but man, Philip Bailey just, he sounds so open up there. His technique and his breath support are just killer. This whole thing is like a real technique test, especially to be able to sing it over and over and over again the way that he does. I multi-tracked myself, and just doing that was pretty tiring. If I had to do this on a gig, I would be pretty spent by the end of the song, maybe by like the end of the first chorus, but Bailey could just do this night after night after night and sound flawless. It's actually really fun to try to recreate vocal parts like this. If you're a singer and you work on vocal technique at all, um, I actually really recommend that, just trying to do this. I don't do enough of this, and it's a fun thing to do if only because it'll give you a new appreciation for just how good some of those legendary singers were.
from there they just let the chorus coast on for a second time with a new lyricless melody to carry us along. And they capped this first chorus off with one of the most famous trumpet parts in pop history. That trumpet part is no joke, it's just an A major arpeggio with a sixth added, an F sharp in there, but each note gets two sixteenth notes, so it's a real feat of trumpet double-tonguing. Dig it, 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 you really gotta get in there, and it's just moving so fast that uh, that you can't lose the time or fall behind. It's very, very easy to fall behind on this. It's definitely a rite of passage for cover band horn sections. I know that whenever I'm at a wedding or a party or somewhere where a cover band is playing and the band goes into September, I'm always listening for the end of that first chorus to see if the trumpets can hang. So from here, the song just stays in the same lane. They keep things interesting by peppering in new vocal or horn parts as they go. Like, for example, listen to what White does and what the horns do on this second phrase of the second verse. Maurice White is so good, man, and that's something with this song. I, I, I haven't talked about the lyrics because they're pretty simple, right? I mean, it's just kind of this very broad, out-of-focus thing about love, and we sang and we danced and we felt the love together, but that's cool, man. Like, I think that it's really cool that this song is just sort of about feeling good. It's about joy, and it doesn't need to be any more specific than that. It's not about one person or one character or one story. It's about a feeling. I love that when Maurice does that. Eow. There's another one of those cool new layers happening here, a new descending vocal counter melody that runs along with the main chorus melody. Listen for it. In addition, Philip Bailey has started using the final chord to really show off his high notes. Ugh, I can't believe how effortless he makes that sound. I recorded this too just to try to sing it. That's a high E that he goes up to on that final chord. It's just beautiful sounding and it sounds so effortless for him. But okay, here's me trying the same thing. That high E is no joke. The lyric there is golden dreams were shiny days, but Bailey doesn't even try to sing days on that high E. He just goes, yeah, which he totally gets away with. That's actually something singers do a lot on the really high stuff because being super articulate that high, it doesn't really sound great and you don't need to because the rest of the vocal parts are doing the articulating for you. So he just kind of goes up and sings yeah on this absolutely chiming, perfect high E. Give me a break. 
that's how September ends. The grooves surging forward, the horns on a triumphant fanfare, and Philip Bailey's vocals soaring above, cascading over and over as the song fades into an endless late summer twilight. think you can set out to write a song about joy. Where would you even begin? But as Maurice White, Al McKay, and Allie Willis showed, you can set out to write a song about September, and in the process, wind up writing a song about joy. You can write endlessly cascading melodies and put them atop an effortlessly floating chord progression. You can stack amazing musicians on top of one another until their parts combine to make something like liquid gold or a shimmering musical mirage. And even then, you might still just have a really good song about September. But there's such joy in this recording, and I think it comes from all of those musical elements I just listed, unified and amplified by something else, a band who takes profound, deep joy in the act of playing music and of playing the song. Earth, Wind & Fire was one of the most exuberant, joyful bands to ever make a record in year after year, show after show, they channeled that joy through their instruments and out into the world. It's this certain, magic kind of musical transference, the joy we feel when we dance to September is the joy they felt when they played it. Their hearts were ringing in the key that their souls were singing, and when we listen to them sing, our souls start ringing too. That'll do it for my analysis of Earth, Wind & Fire's September. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope that you have or had a joyful 21st of September. Thank you all so much for listening to this show. Making Strong Songs brings me so much joy. Every episode is a joy to make. And while I don't actually know most of you out there listening, like personally, it does bring me a lot of joy just to know that there are people out there listening along. I really am able to keep doing this show because of your support. I remain committed to not selling ads on Strong Songs, even though that does mean that I'm leaving income on the table. But it is awesome that so many of you support me making the show this way, the way I want to make it, with nobody else having any influence on it. You make it so that I don't have to sell ads, and I can just make the show. Sustainable, audience-supported media. Who knew? If you'd like to pitch in and be part of that audience that supports the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. You can, of course, join the Strong Songs Patreon at patreon.com slash strong songs. That'll get you access to some fun behind-the-scenes stuff, Patreon-exclusive posts, and a Patreon-exclusive podcast feed that's going to have some fun extras. That last one is new. You can also donate directly on PayPal, or you can buy a mug or t-shirt from the store. There's links for all of that stuff down in the show notes. But of course, another great thing you can do is just spread the word about the show, tell people about it, keep spreading the word, and thank you so much to everyone who's already done so. This episode's outro soloist is Connecticut-based saxophonist, songwriter, and educator Eric Elligers. Eric and I went to school together, and way back, like 20 years ago, he wrote this whole huge transcribed chart of September for a band that we were both in together. We both played in the horn section, and this song always makes me think of him. So stick around for Eric, and I'll see you in two weeks with yet another strong song. Strong song.